Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since 1983, Copenhagen Modern Furniture has showcased Austin's largest collection of fine contemporary furniture and accessories. Now, at Copenhagen, save $500 on any stressless signature or leg comforter recliner model. For more ways to save, shop online at copenhagenliving.com or visit the showroom on Breaker Lane. Copenhagen Modern Furniture, Austin's premier destination for everything contemporary since 1983. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm Addie Broyles. And I'm Alyssa Vidalis, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake and the offices of the Austin American Statesman. In this week's I Love You So Much, music writer Peter Blackstock sits down with Kimmy Rhodes, a longtime Austin singer-songwriter who recently released a book about her partnership with Joe Gracie, a noted DJ and music producer who lost his ability to speak 30 years before his death in 2001. Kimmy tells Peter what it's like to co-author Radio Dreams with Gracie using a memoir he already started as well as letters, emails, and other writings he left behind. She also shares a song called Radio Dreams that she recently wrote in conjunction with the release of the book. As always, we'll end our show with a toast, a set of recommendations of things we think you should be checking out right now. But first, let's hear from Peter and Kimmy. So, Kimmy, first off with with the book, uh, when did when did Joe start writing this? Um, Let's see. I met Joe in 79. Uh, part of it he had already written. He was a writer. He wrote for the Statesman. He wrote a rock column. I think maybe the first one. I'm not sure. But That's he what wrote, I have been told. Uh-huh, yes. Yeah. He wrote a rock column for the Statesman and many, many things in the book because the book is a dual memoir um, driven by the fact that he had started a book. Um, he, When I met him in 79, he had just lost his voice to cancer a head and neck cancer on his tongue. And he, prior to that, had been a DJ at Coke FM during the glory days of the freak redneck revolution here in Austin. And he wrote for the Statesman, and he wrote for The Sun, and he wrote for different publications and emceed a lot of shows. And uh, he had just lost his voice to the last of a series of seven major operations trying to save his voice. Um, when I met him and one of the first things uh, maybe the first thing that I ever saw that he had written is in the book and it was a thing he had an old dinosaur of one of those cast iron typewriters he would sit at that typewriter and write and I have many many things that he wrote but he started writing a book called Radio Dreams and a lot of what he showed me that first time were was the story that he had written about losing his voice his journey through cancer and (laughs) it really helped me get to know him better and i think it'll help people who read the book know him better because 
all during that, he had a wit and a sense of humor, and he was a really good writer. He was clever. And um, he wrote about losing his voice in the context of being on the road promoting an Alvin Crow single in New York and trying to get that to go up the chart. So he's in Nashville. I think one of my... <laughs> One of my favorite things of that, maybe I'm a little bit off the road here, but uh, just to make a point, I'm reading along. It's pretty sad. He keeps calling his doctor. It's looking like it might be cancer. He's trying to save his voice. He hasn't even really gone there yet in his mind that he might lose it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's at a, it was during the days when there really was kind of a run and gun battle between Nashville and Austin because Austin was a music scene and Nashville was a music business. Right. And uh, we were starting to kind of take over the world there for a while. And so there was all this back and forth. And so Gracie was in Nashville at a record executive's office sitting in his cowboy boots with his blue jeans. He was very Fort Worth. And the record executive said something he didn't like. And so I won't, I guess I can't say, I don't know what I can say on a podcast. <laughs> you could gently say things. Can I say, yeah. well, he said something about the excrement of a bull. <laughs> and then he scooted his chair back and stood up. Now, this, these are in his words that I know this story. Stood up, decided he was mad, he was leaving, and he stomped out of the room, and he went and got in his big old Cadillac sled that he had, and he was so mad, he decided that he was just going to go to Memphis just to try to be near something real. Just get out of Nashville and go be near something real. So he was going to go to Sun Studios, and he was going to go to Graceland, he was just going to go to Memphis. So it's about a four-hour drive. Mm-hmm. I think the way he was going to do it was probably going to be about a three-hour drive. But he started down the road, and he realized he wouldn't still be mad enough by the time he got there. So he turned his car around, went to the airport, and flew to Memphis from Nashville so he'd still be mad enough when he got there. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's just uh, in really one of the most poignant chapters of the book. That was how he presented it. And and there are some really, it's up and down. It's a real roller coaster, that chapter. But I think he was trying to, you know, write his way through the trauma of having lost his voice. And then he also had a really interesting story to tell about um, getting into radio in Fort Worth when he was just a kid. And uh, Mm -hmm. he had an uncle that taught him how to make a radio transmitter out of an oatmeal box, and they'd put it in a wagon and haul it down the street. And um, in the context of what he did here in Austin, to break ground at Coke FM and with progressive country music in the 70s. you I really, as I put all these things that he had written together, um, I realized that it made me understand how he became the guy he was by the time he got to Austin at Coke FM because he'd been working in Fort Worth in radio at a station when FM was still very young and Chet Atkins had started a format called Country Politan right. to try to sell more records. Uh, to What is it, Gracie put it, to people besides old people who drank beer, uh, old guys who drank beer and shot deer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, it's a, it, there's a lot of that in there too. He had a lot of different reasons for starting the book and I had a lot of different reasons for finishing it after he died. Yeah. You know, uh, the part of why I think it was important that he wrote this book was because he was so important to Austin music and, and the, the, 
real influence he had with Coke FM in the seventies. And then his, his career as a producer producing Willie and those early sessions with Stevie Ray Vaughan. And so he was involved in so many important things, but what I got out of the book more was, was the depth of the, the personal stuff. The, the story about cancer is very moving and the story about, how you all got to know each other in 79. Uh, it's, it's, it's a love story as much as it's a career story, really. Well, that was the direction I decided to send it because I, I have an interesting story, too. I'm always more eager to talk about his part of it because my motivation really was to finish his book and have him be remembered. But also, after three and a half years of basically living in Houston in the journey at MD Anderson with him at the end of his life when his cancer returned I felt it would be very helpful because also as you get down towards the end of it there are letters that he wrote there's actually one of my favorite excerpts from the book is a letter that he wrote to a fellow patient at MD Anderson at the request of his speech pathologist about what it had been like to not speak for 30 years and I'm so that letter is so precious to me because Everything about him shines through. His humor, uh, the poignancy of not being able to speak, and not just telling it from his point of view, but telling it to a fellow patient who was about to lose his voice. And just that whole journey and MD Anderson and all that it meant to him. But, But also, I decided to include my memoir, too, because there are many, many books. Well, it came together like it came together. I actually thought of the memoirs as pearls. And our story is sort of the string. And I I put them on there in an order that most of what, well, everything of his was written because it was after he had already passed away. But most of what I had, I had already written in bits and pieces, too, because I'm a writer. So um, the challenge, really, of the book was to put it together in in a way that it actually did tell our story. And I'm glad that you said love story because it was decided early on that the best way to tell it was as our our story, our love story, because I also think that there are things in my story as a caregiver. There are things in my story as a person who came to Austin in 79 with a little handful of songs aspiring to maybe make a record someday. And I got to record duet records with Willie Nelson and work with Waylon Jings. I've had a really incredibly magic life and our life together was very magic and one of the longest chapters in the book is called we must believe in magic because our mentor cowboy jack clement uh, that was pretty much the theme song and and i i just felt like it was it would encourage other people to understand that well let's put it this way when i first came to austin i think someone told me statistically they had read somewhere that uh, my chances of being struck by lightning were greater than my chances of succeeding as a singing star and i thought well okay let's see if we can get struck by lightning (laughs) and uh you know uh but it did take there were a lot of really amazing almost kind of supernatural at times turns of events and things and uh not just involving our careers and our life together, but also towards the end, there were there were many wonderful things. I don't want to have any spoilers or anything, but um, there was a very interesting chapter at the end called the White Dove. There were there were many things that confirmed that, you know, even though thing we weren't having the outcome we wanted, uh, you know, 
life and time were still on our side. Luck was still with us. Yeah. Um, the, the construct of this, the duet memoir, uh, did you have any sort of, uh, pattern or example to go by with this i I expect that that there probably have been other books written like this but i have not read them where it's where it's two people writing a a memoir together essentially did you did you have examples you could go by that you that you patented after or were you just sort of uh, doing it only the way you envisioned it well being the googler that i am i did uh just I didn't really completely read any dual memoirs, but I did notice they were out there, and I was trying to figure out what the, what the various devices were. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but the actual division of the memoirs put together in an order. So I decided to use this little radio tower as markers for when you were at the end of a thought and then still tried to put them together where they stayed in some sort of chronological order. But... I had to do that, and that was really the harder challenge. But I just decided that um, I just sort of followed the yellow brick road because that's always what's worked best for me. But for the most part, um, I started with his childhood, which is where the book began, and then I put my childhood, and I I sort of followed it along. And then once we were together, uh, I think there there was only surprisingly – I wasn't sure I was gonna, how I was going to make it work with his, to be honest. But at the end of the chapter called Contrabandistas, which is where he lost his voice initially in the 70s, I did write just a small thing at the end. But for the most part, up until I met him, it was me, him, him, me, whatever. And then after that, I, and surprisingly, I found stories that I thought I was going to have to write or had even had already written and, and had to decide which one to use. Um, like in the case of when we went to Nashville one time, we'd been in Europe and we'd been traveling, and we were just so far out there in our minds. I don't think we were ever coming back. And we, I had just gotten a cut by Winona Judd, and we had all this money we were about to make all of a sudden, and back when she was the most coveted cut you could get at the time. And, and uh, we went to dinner and didn't have the money to pay, and we had a check for $7,000 that we just picked up in advance from the publisher, and we had a whole bunch of euro, and our credit cards were completely maxed out. We went and celebrated and drank, did what we'd been doing in Paris and, and all over Europe for about two months, and uh, got to the end of the meal and didn't have the money to pay. <laughs> and I thought I was going to have to write that, but I found his version, and I loved it. Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories in the book. I was going to actually ask you about that one. And it's it's wonderful that, that Joe had, had written something about it already. I know. It was great for me because I got to read it. Well, it was really just like a visit from him. Mm-hmm. After everything I'd been through, losing him and try, him trying to survive the second round of cancer, and or third really, as it were, and uh, just everything I'd been through and... Uh, it was just great. What what happened was just when I thought I had everything organized, I had all these plastic containers. I go, well, this goes in the book, and I've been working with the Country Music Hall of Fame. Well, this has to go to the director of this documentary I'm working on. I divvied everything up into plastic acid-free containers and I had all these archives that it took years to go through done. And I thought, oh, everything's perfect, and I went on tour. And while I was gone, my water filter broke and flooded my house. Thank God everything was in plastic. And when I got back, 
they immediately came and had to move me out of my house and completely wreck my house and i was in a i was ended up in a hotel up on 360 that hadn't opened yet it's called mm-hmm. the grand duca and they the the insurance company put me in there my engineer moved my archive studio i had all these things i had to go through to actually start putting the book together and i'm trapped in a hotel room for three months with the book and the archives <laughs> and and it was so funny because i got everything moved in i was just really just practically in tears by then because i just got jerked out of my house and thrown in a hotel and too bad and uh, <laughs> my life was a shambles and i opened the curtains on 360 and i looked out the sun was had just really was going down and twinkling in the just outside my window were all those radio towers there on 360 with clouds stuck in them and i thought okay radio dreams here we go so i would just read every morning i had emails i had blogs i had things he had written before i ever met him i had things i'd written i just had this hodgepodge of memoirs and i divided them up into plastic containers as i would read them i'd put them in whatever chapter i thought they belonged in and in that way, I kind of just created my own way forward because I didn't have any idea how I was going to string all that together. Yeah, it seemed to me like the process of writing this book must have been as much as anything like an editing jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> it and, was uh, a puzzle. I, it took me, well, for about the first year after he died in 2011, I, I say I thought we were just floating on a big pink cloud. I was going through post-trauma. I'd had to bring him home from France in an air ambulance um we at that point thought he was in remission and then suddenly he was dying and and i was in shock and post-trauma and all these things and so for the first year i don't really remember a lot about it i was just going wow life (laughs) you know Uh, but after that after that first year under my belt i i really started going through all these things and uh, working with the country music hall of fame on the outlaws and armadillas exhibit and working with a guy named eric gettleman on a documentary called they called us outlaws and it it really drove the the whole project in many ways it wasn't just the book and and um i finally it took about five years well about four years and then last year uh you know i put the we finished the edit and i put the date on when it was released actually before it was released which i learned something on that i self-published the book but Mm -hmm. Uh, for the most part, I toured last spring. with. Bob. There's only one of me. So I, I released it in Britain and in the U.K. and toured with Bob Harris, who's a DJ over there, a really beloved DJ. Right. And I toured with him kind of in a conversation with songs and stories. And then I went to the opening of Outlaws and Armadillas in May. And then I went back to Europe and toured some more. And I've been doing house concerts and different gigs and telling stories and singing songs. So... I feel like, in a way, in Austin, with uh, the with the book people, to me, I had I had a year or two <laughs> to get around to everything because I had to have that. Right. And uh, I feel like it, it's a, kind of a big finale for me on the book release to be in Austin at book people and be able to do this with my friends and everyone there. And now I'm, I've really got my stories together now because I've been working on it for a year. You. I uh, have a relationship with the the Buddy Holly Educational Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, that's one of the happy things that's happened along the journey since Gracie passed away. Um, but working with uh, Bob Harris 
and the folks over in England. I've a lot of my career, like many, many singer songwriters from America, I have been very much appreciated over there and been in labels and toured over there, actually more than I have in America. Um, for the most part in my career, I've, it's been regional for me here. But in the course of all that, I met uh, some folks. Uh, Bob and his wife, Trudy, introduced me to the Bradleys. And um, they have, with Maria Elena Hawley and a fellow named Stephen Easley and some other folks, formed a board. And it's the Buddy Holly Educational Foundation, and the purpose of it is to work with young writers and continue Buddy's legacy to keep the music, you know, true and honest and alive. And, and, and uh, well, Maria Elena Holly, I mean, one of the most delightful things that happened was I opened my computer one day to check my email, and I had a letter from Maria Elena Holly, which she allowed me to include in the including the foreword to the book and uh we i work over in glastonbury first for the first couple of of years i worked in glastonbury uh, at a songwriting retreat that's uh led by a guy named chris difford the mm -hmm. band squeeze right and then we did one in lafayette louisiana. last year uh-huh yeah. in lafayette louisiana we did that and we just we just older more you know the old dogs the muscled up writers people that have been with publishers and made records for years we work with younger writers who are in artist development or just aspire to learn how to write songs and we write with them it's not like a teaching thing we sit down and write songs and then we do the songs sort of in a little concert at the end of the day so and also you know we've got the the uh, book people thing on the day that buddy sadly died 60 years ago right but um, what we're doing in September, um, when they gave me my guitar, my buddy Holly, uh, they made me an ambassador and gave me this beautiful tooled leather Atkins guitar that's, that's uh, made especially for me, and I get the name Lonesome Tear. Every ambassador gets a, a guitar named after a buddy song. Mine's Lonesome Tears. And uh, we went to Lubbock for them to present the guitar to me, for uh, Maria Elena was sort of giving her blessing to the big new music hall in Lubbock. Um, they, so they could call it the Buddy Holly Hall. And I actually went with Dwayne Eddy and I received our guitars together and did a little gig at the Buddy Holly Center there. So I grew up in Lubbock, and that story's in the book too. But uh, it was it was meaningful to become to come full circle and and be back in Lubbock. And now uh, they've just been talking to me. The groundwork's being laid. I haven't been, we don't know, I don't know exactly everything about it, but it is going to be at um, Buddy's birthday in September. I think his birthday was September 7th. That week of his birthday, we're going to do a songwriting retreat that's going to be, uh, I think Joe Ely and I as ambassadors are going to oversee it and decide who writes with who and all that. It's, it's a, uh, it's all very gently done, really. And uh, there will be some heavy hitters there as writers and some newcomers that are that are really up and coming. And it's going to be really fun. We're going to do that. And I think it's going to end in a show at the Buddy Holly Center uh -huh. there, too. So I'm, I'm excited about that. My year has already really taken shape. And it looks like I get a, yet another year of Radio Dreams Project. And speaking of, of <laughs> Radio Dreams is the title of the book. It's also a song that you have written and is available on your website right now is that right uh, what was the the spark behind that well if you it, it's true if you go to kimmyroads.com 
you can enter your email and we'll send you a track of it it's not released on a record but like i sort of touched on all these things i i I came to call it the radio dreams project i did actually did a kickstarter to raise the money for the book and decided to self-publish since i was going to be the one out doing all the work anyway Mm -hmm. and i um I'm just a self-publishing kind of girl, you know, and I've been in the record business. I've released my own records for years. And I like the story in the book where, where uh, y'all are, where Willie asks, you know, who your distributor is, and, <laughs> and I guess Bobby Earl Smith says God. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have been on labels and stuff since then, but every since then, right. everything I've ever done has come back to me, and I now have everything I've done. And but it became a project as I went through all these archives. I had hundreds of tapes that Joe Gracie had taken a four-track TAC all over Austin during that important time in the 70s and recorded really rare things that uh, one of them was like, every day I would put something on in my little archive studio. One day I ran across uh, Bonnie Raitt's first radio ID, and it was with Gracie, and she was going, I've never done one of these before, and he tells her how to do it. And there were just many, many, many wonderful audio things too. So as I went through these things, it it became... The book was like the brochure for the project, really. And I began to understand how important it was that, uh, you know, I talked to the Country Music Hall of Fame, and they had great interest in having all those things. And then later, an exhibit, and I worked with Eric Gettleman on this documentary. And, and I also worked as a liaison with other artists to present archives and artifacts and recordings and things. And uh, I worked with uh, Texas Tech, the uh, Crossroads music collection there with Terry Allen and a lot of people have their stuff there. And so I decided after I had gone through all these things, I was going to need to place them somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking of it as the radio dreams project. I am getting around to answering your question about the song. (laughs) Right. Uh, So I worked on an major exhibit at the country music hall of fame. I worked on a 12 hour documentary. I wrote a book. I went, wait a minute. I'm a songwriter. I've done everything else under the under the name Radio Dreams, but I have not written a song called Radio Dreams. So for the shows that I was going to be doing and uh, this one, It Book People and the ones with Bob, I thought, well, I should start with a song called Radio Dreams. And so, but I didn't have time to write the song um, with Gary Nicholson, my co-writing partner that I wanted to write it with because I knew he'd lead me in the right direction and kind of keep my feet more nailed down. It wouldn't get so ethereal that nobody understood it. So uh, he was doing a gig down in Houston. So I just got in the car with him with the guitar, rode to his gig in Houston with him, wrote half the song on the way there, wrote the other half on the way back, and then recorded it as soon as I got back home. So I had it just in time to get uh, Radio Dreams the song I drifted away in a dream Where rock and roll and Memphis soul Showed a whole new world to me I'd wake up with a song rolling round in my head Feeling a groove I'd never forget I felt the change coming over me Dreaming my radio dream 
Welcome to the portion of the show we call A Toast, where three of us are going to recommend something we're really into these days. We have with us Sharon Chapman, the executive editor of the Features Department at the Austin American Statesman, and of course, Elizabeth Dallas and myself. Sharon, I'm going to start with you. Oh, okay. Well, my recommendation is actually a little self-serving because it promotes our Austin 360 Book Club, which you can join on Facebook. Our January book was There There by Tommy Orange, and I still haven't finished it only because I don't want it to end. It's so good. It's He's a brand new writer to the world in a way. I mean, a year ago, this book came out and he's been a finalist or has won pretty much every award out there. He's a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award now. And his book ended up on, I don't even know how many best of lists at the end of the year. So we picked it for our January pick. He is, let me make sure I get this right. He is um, Cheyenne and Arapaho author. It's set in Oakland. And it looks at modern, he calls them urban natives, and it's modern um, Native Americans living in Oakland, and they, it's a bunch of different stories. He kind of tells it chapter by chapter, and then they all come together at a big powwow in Oakland. All their stories kind of converge, and it's just so good. I mean, the stories are great, and his writing, and the way he puts words together, and just the way he sort of describes things like time and family and relationships I started when I was reading it, um, putting little post-it notes on pages that had passages that I love. I talked about this in our book club discussion, and I realized about 30 pages in, I would have a post-it on almost every other page <laughs> because there's just so many beautiful sentences and just something about his voice I've really responded to. And of course, I'm not the only one because like I said, he's completely celebrated right now. So I, I would just really recommend Tommy Orange, There, There. I know there's a lot of waitlist at the library a friend of mine told me she's about to get the large print edition of it uh she's on that because she put herself down for every version of it at the <laughs> library and inside tip she told me the waitlist for the large print usually moves faster mm-hmm. you can read faster i guess i guess so and, and maybe not as many people want the large print sure. so yeah i just would That's say a great recommendation yeah read there there it's so good i can't wait for his next book to come out whenever it happens and uh join our Austin 360 book club too do you know how old he is I think he's in his 30s. I don't think he's super old. Joe Gross did an interview with him uh, where he talked about he didn't even get into writing until a little bit later in life. He was an athlete and um, like pro roller skating was big in the 90s. I didn't know a ton of. Yeah. And so he was on that path to become a professional in this league. And then it fell apart. The league did, I think. And so he started working at a bookstore and that just opened him up to reading and he started reading everything he became a voracious reader and like one book would lead to him to a different book Mm -hmm. and he just read huge genres and then he got into writing programs and and just his story is really interesting i mean i think he was already smart and you know went to school and everything but he didn't identify as a writer i think until a little bit later so yeah that's amazing i think i missed my calling to become a professional roller skater i I guess i'll let that one go that would have been amazing (laughs) Alyssa, what are you into these days Oh, right now, like in the past couple of weeks. So uh, I'm getting ready for Star Wars Celebration. That is the big like conference of Star Wars nerds in April at uh, Chicago. And I needed a couple of things for this party that they're going to have. It's a Canto Bite themed soiree. So we're talking like like Great Gatsby, but aliens and black and white. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Okay, so I totally want to just do an extravagant outfit. And I'm automatically thinking, well... Maybe a prom dress or something. It's like, God, well, what? Am I going to go on eBay? I don't want to spend too much on something just to like have for one night and then throw away. And I was looking around for places and I, 
there's this site called Poshmark, P-O-S-H-M-A-R-K. And it's basically like um, just a seller to you know buyer network and they have listings of all this stuff like like i bought a pair of boots for my imperial officer uniform that's the last thing i need to be like confirmed for like for she had it for 200 bucks i got it for 33 wow but this the buying process was super interesting to me because it's i pay money through paypal and that sale doesn't go through it's not taken out of my bank account until that person sends me my boots and i say Okay, this is what was the this is the item that was described. It's a legit sale. It's cool. And then Poshmark would be like, cool. And then therefore the sale would be completed. So it makes it feel like really safe, especially when you're dealing with, you know, people's hand me downs or whatever. So it just seemed like a really cool space to kind of just, you know, huh, this is just a ten dollar dress and uh yeah, Poshmark for all of your costuming needs and like any party that you need to get close to. So it's for. like vintage it can be a vintage but it's also new yeah it's all completely freaking consignment new. yeah Almost like, like there's consignment. all some sorts of stuff a lot of the real housewives from bravo sell on poshmark <laughs> i'm just now getting with the times here maybe these are some of their dresses and they're like oh ten dollars what you can't see right now is that Alyssa's wearing a newspaper dress oh thank you yes. it literally looks like a newspaper it's awesome yes i'm supporting the mod cloth scene right now <laughs> <laughs> so my recommendation this week is a restaurant although i typically leave the restaurant recommendations to my colleague matthew odom i got to go to the hayes city store last weekend my boyfriend tim is a huge fan of this place and it's way down in like it's like western hayes county south of driftwood on 150 and it used to be a an actual city called hayes city way back in the day and then in the i think or the early 80s it opened as a convenience store uh maybe slash ice house and then it turned into a counter cafe sort of thing and i think by the you know 2013 it was really in disrepair and they had to re they closed new management reopened it in 2015 and then i think they really revamped it in 2017 and that is when about when i start hurting you know i started hearing more people talk about it and i just thought oh this is going to be some sort of like nutty brown cafe situation out in near you know which is nutty brown cafe it was an old restaurant um out on 290 but this is several steps above what the nutty brown cafe and i as a i was a host at the nutty brown way back when so i'm allowed to say this with love (laughs) i i if you worked there or if uh, you went to the nutty brown cafe in the summer of 2006 i probably sat you at your table (laughs) um but the hay city store has this beautiful outdoor venue where you can listen to live music they have a full bar they also still have milk and some staples in the old um you know freezer or the refrigerated section you know like when you walk into a convenience store they've got the walls of refrigerators so they still have those but they have a full menu and by a full menu i mean amazing pizzas my kids got this pepperoni pizza that they just devoured um the chicken fried steak is to die for i just Mm. got a um, chicken tortilla soup that was really good but the menu was really interesting i wanted to try everything on it but more so just the space and the vibe the service was fantastic and um you know it was just kind of it was a rainy day and we just wanted an, an excuse to get out of the town for a minute and it gave us a good destination it's about you know 20 miles south of austin so it it takes you a little bit to get there um but it is well worth it and i can't even imagine how wonderful it's going to be to go back on a really nice day when we can enjoy the setting because that part it's really the beginning of the hill country right there so um the hayes city store is my recommendation hmm. well i hope you guys find lots of other wonderful things to enjoy this weekend and i'll see you next week that's our show Thanks for listening. Our theme music is provided by local band Hardproof. To keep up with us online, we're Love Austin 360 on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you get a chance, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find our podcast. 
I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, is a production of the Features staff at the Austin American Statesman, and the show is produced by Alyssa Vidalis and Addie Broyles. You can find everything you'd ever want to know about this show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch us an idea for the show or give us some feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave us a voicemail at 512-912-2504. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your allergy meds. Until next week, we'll see you enjoying Austin's unpredictable weather and wearing too many layers and not enough layers at the same time. Since 1983, Copenhagen Modern Furniture has showcased Austin's largest collection of fine contemporary furniture and accessories. Now, at Copenhagen, save $500 on any stressless signature or leg comforter recliner model. For more ways to save, shop online at copenhagenliving.com or visit the showroom on Breaker Lane. Copenhagen Modern Furniture, Austin's premier destination for everything contemporary since 1983. We'll